0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold'em hand. 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me.
1: Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me, str-
0: hello everyone and welcome back to the grid so excited to welcome a friend of mine a fantastic poker player amanda baker she is a vegas-based poker player and a yoga instructor she mostly plays cash games but has also had some very sweet scores in the tournament world including a world series of poker circuit ring a runner-up finish at the 2016 wsop ladies event and an overall tremendous record At the WSOP Ladies, cashing six times. Today, she throws us all the way back to 2005, where she was playing her first 10K, the WPT in Foxwoods. Hey, Mandy, thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. You have um, a great hand for us today. It's really a spot on the grid that would be very difficult to fill. Jack, five, offsuit, so excited. Can you tell us a little bit about this WPT 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, so um it was my first ever 10k event. I was still very new to poker at the time. I had won this seat on Full Tilt Poker, so um you know, I was just very starstruck by it all and back then it was just so exciting. You know, I sit down at the first table and there's all these pros and people that I recognize. I was very nervous, but very excited. I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I realized I was really concerned about my image and I was really concerned about projecting that I was a serious player and that I knew what I was doing. I think some of that comes from like, just preemptively, you know, trying to prevent like sexism from coming my way. So I was very concerned about my image. And how I presented myself, even though I didn't realize that at the time.
0: And how did you get into the event? Did you satellite in or did you buy in? Yeah, so they would run $200
1: satellites on full tilt poker at that time. And I remember it would usually pay out the top two seats. And I remember getting really close in one. And I was kind of chatting with one of the guys who ended up winning. And I remember being like, oh, well, I'll win one. And I did. And I I just I always felt like I would win it. Um, my seat to it. And so I was really excited when I did. Yeah, so I'd won my seat on Full Tilt. I was so excited. I was so nervous. They had a dinner the night before that was for all the satellite winners. um, And then it had all like the Full Tilt pros. So that was ended up being really important. I met some people that I'm still friends with to this day. I met this woman that I ended up, Heather, that I ended up living with for a long time. And then my other friend, Jen, who's one of my best friends I had met
0: that night. When did the Jack-5 offhand happen? What what part of the tournament was that? Was that day one?
1: I had been playing kind of tight. I was pretty nervous. Plus, there weren't Annie's the first few levels. So I'd kind of slowly been building my stack up. I, had, I hadn't been being too wild or anything. We started with 10K, and I slowly built my way up to about 25,000. And I had, I had been playing pretty tight. You know, I was nervous, but also there were Annie's. I had been playing pretty tight and there was a kid at my table and he kept opening a bunch of pots and they weren't going to showdown and he was a young guy. So I didn't know him at the time. The player in question is Matt Smith, screen name Sammy Knoll from Florida. I didn't know him at the time, but he, you know, he was a young guy. He was opening a lot of pots. So I just figured he was being really aggressive. Because it was 2005, you know, this is back when like the squeeze play was like the thing. (laughs) So he had opened in early position. I think he was under the gun plus one. This was the first level where Annie's had kicked in. So we are playing 100-200 with the 25 Annie. And he opens under the gun plus one to 600-ish. And then the next three players all called. So before I even looked at my hand, I was like, oh, you know, this is this is the spot I can squeeze here. I can make a squeeze play. And I I had the right image. I'd been playing tight. I looked down at my hand and it was jack five offsuit. But I'd like already decided that I was going to do it (laughs) because it was 2005 and your cards didn't matter back then. (laughs) So I three bet to about 3,600. And back then it's weird to think about, but like, I wasn't even thinking one step ahead at that time because I wasn't even thinking about what happens when he shoves, what price am I going to be getting? Like I wasn't even that far along in my poker thought. So I just thought, you know, Hey, I've been tight. Like, This guy's opening way too much. He's too wide. We've got all these colors. Like everyone's going to give me credit for a hand here. So I made the three bet and then he shoves, Folds back to him and he shoves. That's when I realized my mistake (laughs) because I hadn't even considered his stack size and what happens if he does shove, right? So he shoves, folds back to me. He had maybe like 11 or 12,000 start the hand. So now I'm getting like a little bit over two to one. And I had heard, if you're getting two to one, you have to call. Just like a simple kind of heuristic, which it applies when you have a strong hand and when your opponent's in a reasonable range, like, sure, but (laughs) that doesn't apply to jack five. (laughs) I didn't really know that. And I was just kind of thinking, okay, well, I'm getting over two to one, like, I have to call. I didn't know that I could fold. (laughs) So... I called and I just remember everyone being pretty surprised. Matt Matros was at the table. He was on my right. I still remember the sound he made (laughs) when I flipped over my hand. So um, Sammy Noel, Matt Smith had had Ace King. So I was live, but uh, we didn't get there. We doubled him up. And I learned an important lesson about (laughs) you always have to think at least one step ahead, if not two or three. Looking back on it, like even if I decided I had wanted to make that play with Jack five, like I probably could have three bets smaller and then folded to a shove. Cause I do think, you know, I am still going to get a lot of credit. It's obviously Jack five is not a hand you want to be three bet with, but like at least if I had been thinking it ahead, I could have made a smaller three bet and then folded to the shove. But I wasn't even thinking that far ahead at that time.
0: At the time, you mentioned that people went for these plays much less based on the value of their cards and more on, on the situation. Mm-hmm. After you turned over your cards, did you feel embarrassed?
1: A little bit, but I almost think people's reaction made me way less embarrassed because the reaction of the table was like surprise. So I... Felt good about the fact that I felt like, you know, if Matt Smith didn't have a strong hand, if he didn't have ace-king, like, it would have worked. I'm surprised that I wasn't embarrassed. No, I don't think I was that embarrassed. And I, I think it's mostly just because I really felt like no one was expecting me to have a bluff there and that it would have worked a decent amount of time. But um, the funny thing was, like, after the hands, the whole day, the in fact, for... A few years, like I still kind of analyzed it that same way of like thinking he was opening to lights and I could get away with it. So I didn't know him at the time. And after the tournament was over, so I I ended up min-cashing and I was looking at the list of the other people that cashed. And I saw on the list a name that said Thomas Fuller Boulder. And I was living in Boulder at the time. And I'm like, wait, who's this Thomas Folder from Boulder? Like, I live in Boulder. Who is this? And then I moved away from Boulder. So a few years later, all of us are hanging out, and we're all talking about the hand. And I say something about him. Oh, he was opening a pot, and this and that. And they're kind of like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, he's like super tight. <laughs> like he definitely wasn't like opening too wide. And that was something I didn't know for like several years. I just assumed that my read on him was right. And, you know, it wasn't until years later that my friends told me, they're like, no, he's really tight. Like if he was opening a bunch of hands, like it's because he was getting a bunch of hands. (laughs) So it's so funny that, you know, years later, I still was like not even analyzing the hand correctly or I still didn't even realize that I had made that assumption that just because he was opening a bunch, that meant that he was aggressive. Even though I wasn't hands, I just assumed they weren't with strong hands because based on the frequency and based on the fact that he was a young guy. So then the whole Jack five became like a running joke in our group that <laughs> we would always go back to and like the Jack five. And it's just fun looking back to, you know, this tournament that all three of us played in and we didn't know each other at the time. And then years later, the three of us are friends and playing this whole game together.
0: Yeah. This
1: other game, this ticket to ride.
0: What is ticket to ride? Um, It's a board
1: game. It's a lot of fun.
0: So tell about the (laughs) uh, evolution of the squeeze play because you mentioned it was like very hot back then in 2005. And Mm -hmm. how have you seen that kind of change over your poker career?
1: Well, one thing that's changed about it is that people don't just flat raise as much. You know, before it'd be like someone opens and people call with hands like, you know, King, Queen, King, Jack, and you, you know, you don't see that. Like we, we realize now that, you know, that's not always going to be, be a mistake, but a lot of the times it's a mistake. So nowadays, like if someone opens and another person calls, if that person's a good player, their range is going to be stronger than it was back then. Um, so it's less likely to work for that reason. You know, once people were, you know, realized that squeeze plays were the thing, then it also didn't work as well with the initial opener. It doesn't happen as often because, you know, maybe back then people were opening too light in early position. And so the plays were worse. nowadays, people know not to open light in early position. So if someone is opening in early position, it's going to be with a stronger range
0: somewhat recently maybe it was more like 2012 or something there were still some people that would say stuff like it's good to open light under the gun because people expect your range to be really strong because you're under the gun Mm -hmm. so like that like that was really an argument like even like two or three years ago, people would still say that. I think kind of like since then, like the solvers and the various preflop solutions have kind of influenced almost everyone to some extent. So you don't hear a professional saying that very much.
1: People will give you credit for a stronger range when you open under the gun until they see you do it with a not very good hand. And then they're going to start three betting you <laughs> or if they just see you doing it a bunch and they know you can't they know you're unlikely to be strong each time. Right. Cause that's kind of what I was thinking at the time was like, they have to give me credit for a good hand. Cause I've been so tight and they're going to give me credit for a hand, but I wasn't thinking about his hand and the fact that he had opened a you know, under the gun plus one and he was really strong. And so that same thing applies if you're like, Oh, I'm going to open under the gun and everyone's going to think I'm strong. Oh, it's like, well, OK, yes, people might give you credit for being strong, but there's still going to be eight people behind you who could wake up with a hand. It doesn't matter if someone believes you're strong if they have aces. Yeah,
0: totally. And as it turned out, Nick Schulman actually won this event in 2005, Foxwoods. And we we've talked a little bit about that event. He was only 21 years old at the time. And you, you Mincash, and seeing that you satellited um, from a $200 tournament, that must have been pretty significant.
1: Yes, it was very significant to me. Um, it was definitely, you know, by far my, my biggest score at that time. I had recently graduated college. $11,000 was a lot of money to me at that time. And I remember rolling around on the bed with the money, <laughs> being that excited. Not immediately. When I first busted, I was super
0: disappointed.
1: But after that passed, I was like,
0: that's a lot of money. That softened the blow. And did you roll around in like $100 bills? It wasn't like poker chips. It was like No, no, no. Actual it was h- bills. $100 bills. Yeah.
1: <laughs> $100 bills. Yeah, I actually played with Nick on day two of the tournament. In another hand that I played poorly, <laughs> where I basically like inadvertently turned my hand into a bluff versus him. And, you know, it, it worked. I won the pot, but I remember at the time... Some more experienced poker players talking about the hand with them and them kind of gently trying to tell me that I didn't play it right. <laughs> and me kind of seeing their point, but but also kind of not. It was like a spot where he had opened and I defended it in the big blind. And then I like flopped second pair. I, I think I check raised the flop and then bet again on the turn and he folded. And I remember telling people like being all proud about it and them being like, um you can just check call there on the flop (laughs) trying to help me. But, you know, I was young. I remember thinking about that concept because there was other hands that I played in the tournament where I just basically made that mistake. You know, I think that mistake was pretty common back then. But I remember thinking about that concept a lot afterwards about not, you know, turning your hand into a bluff. Even before that tournament, you know, I'd read lots of poker books. I definitely understood that concept in terms of like, I remember in some book about, you know, like with queens, they were saying like with queens, don't turn your hand into a bluff because you're only going to get called by like, you know, ace king or aces or kings. But looking back on it, I had read books and I had read about the whole idea of don't turn your queens into a bluff. And I knew that concept in terms of like pre-flop, not turning your hand into a bluff. But I don't know how much I had thought about that concept post-flop. And so much of the poker thought at the time was about, oh, well, you, you got to know where you stand and you got to figure out where you stand and you have to know if you have the best hand or not. So much of it was like rare information. We now know not to do that. But that's not a good reason. I ended up winning that hand against Nick Schulman. but I definitely misplayed it. I was a little jealous. I ended up busting with King Jack, so I kind of regretted that. And I always thought, you know, what if, what if I hadn't have done that? Like I could have like gone deeper it could have been me
0: jealous because he was so young so it's like you you being another younger player at that time thinking like that was an opportunity for you to take that
1: exactly that it was won by someone who you know was even younger than me who was also new to poker made me feel like i could have been the one to win it it could have been me if i had like played better
0: Yeah, understandably. And that's all part of like what I think the poker dreams are often based on, like seeing somebody that you compare to yourself in some way and thinking, hey, I could do that too. So because you're talking about 2005 poker, I had to pull out a tweet, which is a journal entry from you, um, because it really reminds me of what you were saying. And you wrote, "Um, when I raise pocket jacks and get re-raised and the flop comes king XX, I should bet out. And if I get re-raised again, I know I'm up against ace king or kings or maybe aces. Because if I don't bet and the other person does, I won't know if I'm being bluffed or not. So yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And
1: it, it's it's funny to me looking back at that and like thinking that the other two cards doesn't matter. Like any flop with a king on it is the same, you know, <laughs> <laughs> And like it's not like king seven deuce rainbow is very different from king 10, nine, all one suit, you know. The the fact that I didn't even put those other two cards in that example, what was I thinking? Did I think they didn't matter? Did I put King XX, but I was just thinking like King 7 Deuce? Like, I don't even know.
0: Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because I do feel like that's kind of like something that people are becoming more aware of that like there's not really bricks, as many bricks as people thought, right? Mm -hmm. So like every, every flop has so many different straight draws and you know they're they're a lot more maybe distinct we I guess what what I mean is that we're making smaller chunks yeah. that said you were thinking about things you know and I feel like a lot of times in 2005 people might not realize but a lot of people were thinking about poker more from like a gambling perspective like I want to get lucky um you know jacks are hot I know that a lot of people like that have been phased out of the poker world because they went broke but that was very prevalent so like these notes even though they might seem so silly today, probably put you in like the top, you know, 10, 20%. Is it, do you feel like that's accurate?
1: Like, I wonder the thing you had said about now we realize bricks aren't as common as we used to think. I have two thoughts on that. One is I wonder how much PLO has helped. I don't play that much PLO, but I feel like there's like no bricks in PLO. And I'm wondering if studying PLO helped people see and hold them that there aren't as many bricks as people thought it's so funny how you can talk with someone about a poker hand and they can say just like one thing just one small sentence and it can just like totally open your eyes up to something you never thought about before like one time i was talking about a hand with um, my friend matt stout and i had mentioned what card came on the turn and i didn't remember the suit of the card i just kind of like assumed you know the board was rainbow. I forgot what I told him. I think he asked about the suit of the card and I didn't know and he was like, "Oh, so the board was complete rainbow." And I never really thought about the fact that that's actually unlikely to happen that like on the turn, the only way the board rainbow is if you have one of each card. I, like I didn't I never thought about the fact of how often you're going to have a backdoor flush draw on the turn. Right. I was seeing way more bricks than there actually are. And so it was just that one thing he said one time made me realize that.
0: Yep, not that easy to get a doogie, right? And I think you're you're right because I, I was just I thought before um when I was trying to study Badoogie a little bit about this and you know four cards all of different suits and I was thinking that in oral hand histories there are way more pure rainbow boards than actually exists. <laughs> because people just don't remember. So they're like, it's irrelevant. <laughs> so a lot of like two tone boards ended up like somehow converting or three tones. Um, somehow ended up converting themselves to a rainbow board. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's, that's a great point. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I just love that you were journaling about poker, because I feel like I did that as well. And uh-huh. it's really valuable, you know, to just like write about what you think so that you're not just like copying other people, even if you're wrong.
1: Um, Yeah, exactly.
0: And is that something that you still do today? Do you still journal or would it mostly be on like your iPhone or your, your computer notes?
1: I mean, I'm an avid note taker, like not just in poker, but in life in general. So I definitely still journal in that, you know, I take a lot of notes on people really helps me to like process it. You know, even if I don't ever go back and look at those notes, it will help me to remember it for later. At some point, my note taking kind of shifted to more taking notes on other players rather than on my own play. And I'm still kind of trying to shift back because I feel like taking notes on your own play and studying your own play is so much more important than trying to look at how other people play and then exploit them. But I still don't do enough of it, you know? And no, I don't really do much journaling anymore, but I should. Like, I'm so glad that I have, you know, that journal from 2005 and that it's like handwritten, just because, yeah, there's so much you can always look back at tweets and this and that. But who wants to do that? Who wants to scroll through tweets from 10 years ago? And that's not going to be there forever. But like, I'll have this handwritten poker journal forever. And it's awesome because I can look back and remember all those feelings of what it was like back then. Having said all that, I actually came across a really interesting idea at the beginning of quarantine. Someone said, you know, it was a really good time to journal because these are the times that people are going to look back on and wonder what life was like. So I have started um, journaling a little bit in that respect, not about poker, but just about the feelings of what's going on in the world right now. And, you know, I'm really hoping that one day, like my my nieces will have some history project and they have to like interview someone about it. And I can like pull out my journal and look back at how crappy everything is right now <laughs> and remember it all. And.
0: That's something you also have in common with Nick Juhlman. He's often carrying around a, a notebook. Um, oh, does he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure as much right now, but just in general, he's definitely been known to take a lot of notes in journal. A lot of strong players, I think, share that. And sometimes I don't feel like they talk about it as much because cause I, I think I I heard about Joey Ingram doing that. Um, He talked about that in his book a little bit. I, I think a lot of strong players do it because it helps them understand what they think, not just what like the computer software thinks about. But there's also this slight like feminization, I think, of journaling and, you know, writing, you know, notes, not just like churning the hard numbers. So I think it's sometimes underreported.
1: That's a very good point. I do feel like people, I don't know that they look down on it, but they do kind of like almost make fun of it a little bit like, oh, you're trying too hard or That's an interesting point. I think there might be some sort of association of journaling with something that women do. And then it's like, maybe like look down on a little bit. Like you don't want people to see you there at the table, like taking notes and being super serious because you don't want to encourage them to be super serious. So I think some of it could come from a place of like, hey, don't kill the game. Like (laughs) don't be so obviously taking it so serious that you're encouraging other people to take it serious, like, you know, try to like hide it, like at least a little bit when you're at the table.
0: <laughs> I don't know, Mandy, though, because I think that people like it's both journaling occupies a weird space. Because like, sure, you're like paying attention and you care. But it also like seems very like old fashioned and like kind of like quirky and artistic. So I, I'm not sure I feel like people if you just pull out like, you know a a journal, um, like a leather-bound journal and your ballpoint pen and, <laughs> and start writing in it. I'm not totally sure that that is a fearsome image.
1: That's it true? That, that might have changed. <laughs> Just because, like, who still takes notes with, like, a pen and paper when they have a phone?
0: <laughs> it is cute, though. And I, I, I think it is powerful over a phone because phone, unless it's an airplane mode, you could be like writing something brilliant and like interrupted by like the latest like notification or text message. So yeah, I definitely dig it.
1: I, w- I was thinking I've been um, studying the stud games some lately and thinking about getting into those. And I don't know the answer to this. I think I remember hearing a long time ago that you're allowed when you play stud games, if you want, you can sit there with a pen and paper and write down like the outs, but I don't remember if like I'm remembering that correctly or not. But I I think I heard that like you're allowed to do that, but like hardly anyone does it. Um, Do you know the answer to that?
0: I don't. That's interesting though. I've never played a tournament with stud game, so... I'm not aware. Good question.
1: I really love the stud games, but my working memory is horrible. And I know that that would like hold me back. (laughs) So like if you're allowed to, I would probably sit there. If I was playing a live stud game and I was allowed to, I think I would sit there.
0: (laughs) I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be allowed because I know like now that there are so many powerful tools, it seems like they're cracking down on charts and stuff on your phone. So it seems Uh like a live chart would be like the same thing. And that like writing down cards that came that were just discarded. I wanted to move on since we did touch on this a little bit. You've had incredible results in ladies events. And I wanted to know, if you had to design a brand new ladies event, how would it be structured? And how would it work?
1: I definitely do not think about like structures as much as I should. There was an interesting debate on Twitter that I was reading about, you know, why do deep stack turbos exist, you know, that, that's stupid, what's the point? And then someone who had like worked in the industry was like, well, it's because amateurs like they want to play for a while, they want to feel like they get their money's worth, you know, they don't want to just buy into a tournament and immediately bust, but they don't have as much time to play for hours and and hours and hours, but they do want to play for like a few hours. They don't want to like bust immediately. And I think that's completely true. I think that recreational players, that's exactly what they want. They do want to get their money's worth. Like I would love playing. I love ladies events. I love being able to go and play with just women. It reminds me of like when I was a kid and I would just play like board games with my friends. It's just so nice to know that you don't have to deal with like stupid bullshit sexism. So that's why I really like them. And of course I would like a slow structured ladies event if I play poker for three days in a row, live poker, like live tournament poker, I'm just absolutely completely exhausted. I mean, I would, I, I really like the WSOP ladies events. I like a tournament that only lasts two or three days. I like a tournament that you do have room to play in the beginning. Certainly I like it when the stacks are still deep enough towards the end, but like also I get exhausted. Like I do not sleep well. If I play a full day of tournament poker, make day two and day two is the next day. Like I'm not that fresh on day two. I'm already starting to feel feel it. And by day three, I'm definitely pretty exhausted. So I would not want to make a structure that lasted any longer than three days. I love that event. It's just the mood. is just so fun. I really, really like it.
0: I love that you're so positive about it. I mean, honestly, it's going to be a bit of an echo chamber for me because I kind of agree it's a fun, positive event. And I don't know what to make of the like yearly or periodic debate about like whether there should be women's events it's just it's Mm -hmm. so bizarre to me because it feels like this kind of forced negativity on something that doesn't belong there it's like why would you even like it just seems like such a wild idea that you would think it means that women are saying they're worse at poker like where does that even come from it doesn't seem inherent to the event itself
1: Yeah, like, and I kind of like kind of fell for that line of thinking for a few years, too. But now to me, it's just so ridiculous. It's such a straw man. I don't know that anyone who plays the event is like, thinks they're playing it because they think women aren't as good. Like we play it because we want to be able to play poker without, you know, (laughs) like one year I tweeted, like, it's so nice to be able to like eat a banana and not have to worry that someone's going to make some creepy comment it's really grating how it's not even the big sexist things that happen at the table that are so problematic. It's all the small things that happen all the time. And even if they don't happen that day, your guard is up because they've happened in the past. Like so many times I've been at the poker table and I'm like putting on socks or I'm putting on my sweatshirt or taking it off. And some guy has some just like creepy weird comment about it. Like, I'm just putting on socks. Like you don't have to make a comment about it. And, you know, it's nothing really super creepy or super out of line, but it's uncomfortable and it happens and it's irritating. It's just nice to play in a tournament without that. And it's nice to play with women who understand or who will make jokes that we all get. One year, someone said something really funny where, like, one woman cussed and the other woman was like, Hey, hey, there's ladies at the table. (laughs) And, you know, everyone laughs because we all get it because it's so stupid when you're at the table and someone cusses and someone else is like, Whoa, ladies at the table. Like, like we've never heard a cuss word before. You know, they think they're helping,
0: but they're not really helping. I mean, I have a slightly different perspective in that I feel like. I don't often have the experience of like sexism at the table but that that said maybe that's just because like people know who I am and they don't want to show up in my Twitter feed or something so I acknowledge mm-hmm. that my experience is not universal but I, it's not it's more just that in ladies events it's just more fun because I know mm-hmm. so many of the people like I know such a large percentage of the people so it's like it's so often going to be like both a fun event where I get to strategize and also an event where it's like a party. Yeah, that's really the reason I like them, and you must like them because you've had such great results. And yeah, that's definitely part of it.
1: Because I I did find them frustrating the first few years, but you know I just didn't go deep. But then once I started having success, then I started liking it more. So <laughs> definitely a bit results oriented in that respect.
0: So in addition to poker, you're also a yoga instructor and a big yoga practitioner. Um, lots of poker players, of course, are into yoga. Is there anything you feel like they're doing wrong in their approach to yoga on average? Like something you feel like poker players could tweak their practice to get more out of it?
1: I mean, I guess just the biggest thing is knowing that yoga isn't about being flexible. It's not about getting your body Into a specific position. It's not about being in better shape. It's not about, it's not even about being a better person. It's about making the world better. So you're not doing it so that you're more flexible. You're not doing it so that you're a better person. You're doing it so that you can make the world better. And there really is something about that mind body connection of like opening the body to open the mind. I don't know what it is, but I can feel it in myself. If all you're doing is stretching, you're not doing yoga, you have to take what you learn in yoga and apply it to life. And you have to take that compassion you learn to give yourself when you're doing yoga, and then apply that to other people. So it's not just about if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do yoga because then I'll be more grounded and then I'll play better poker. Like that's not yoga and that's not what yoga is about. And that's not why you do yoga. I got into yoga for those like, you know, reasons of improving myself. It was only after years of doing it that I realized that that's not what yoga is. So on the one hand, I don't want to like discourage <laughs> people from doing it if like the ways they can improve themselves are what gets them into it great. I just hope that they can keep doing it and keep realizing it's not about making yourself better. It's about making yourself better so that you can go on and make the world better.
0: Very fascinating. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Which poker player do you think would have the hardest time doing a one and a half hour yoga session? Who would you prescribe yoga to? Who probably doesn't do it now?
1: I don't know about a poker player, but I do remember one time talking with my mom and my sister about my, my dad who had passed away. And I had said something about like, oh, he needed yoga. He, he should have done yoga or something. And they both kind of like laughed and they're like, oh, he would have been terrible at yoga. And I'm like, well, exactly. That's, that's why he needed it. Cause he was like, so like, I get all the like tightness there from him, but my dad, okay. So this is hilarious. One time, My mom, this is from like 10 or 15 years ago, my mom said something about how my dad couldn't lay on his back and have his head and his legs be touching at the same time. And I'm like, what do you mean? That's impossible. Everyone can lay on their back. And she's like, no. I'm like, how does he sleep? And she's like, well, with a pillow. I'm like, what do you mean? He can't just lay flat on his back. She's like, he can't lay flat on his back. So the next time I was with them both, (laughs) I'm like, dad, like, get on the ground. What is mom talking about? What does she mean? You can't lay on on your back. And I had my dad lay on the ground. And he really could not lay flat on the ground with his head and his legs on the ground at the same time. Like, I didn't even believe it until I saw it. But my dad was that inflexible. He could not lay flat on the ground. Eventually, he got one of those inversion tables And it got to the point where he could lay flat on the ground, but um, everyone in my family is super, super tight.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's that's a good point. You're not good at something. You might need it more, not less. I I love that.
1: My answer to that question would be, I don't know about who in poker would be like worst at yoga, but the people who should be doing it are the ones who think they're going to be terrible. Like yoga isn't basketball. You don't do yoga because you're naturally good at it. It's the opposite. If, you, if you're really inflexible and you hate sitting still and you don't like introspecting and you don't like focusing on your breath and all that kind of stuff, that is exactly the type of people that need to do yoga and should be doing yoga. All those people that are like, oh, I'm inflexible. Oh, I hate yoga. That's who should
0: be doing it. Great. Love that answer. So you had a popular tweet recently um, about the top 10 most talented poker players and your list was Jennifer Harmon, Vanessa Selps, Maria Ho, Kristen Bicknell, Daniel Anderson, D-Moon Girl, that is, Liv Marie, Kathy Liebert, Annette Oversad, Kim Lim, and Barbara Enright. So tell us a little bit about how you came up with this list and what inspired it
1: the list I spent all of 30 seconds coming up with. The list was a reaction. I had, you know, read a tweet about who are the top 10 most talented poker players. And, you know, the initial list was all men. I went through reading the replies and all these other suggestions were all men. I'm like, you know, where's Jennifer Harmon in this list? Why isn't she being mentioned? Like she is known for being talented at poker. Like that's literally what she is known for is being talented. She won a bracelet in an event that she had just learned how to play that. Like that's what talent is. Like, and then they went on to define talent as kind of being like naturally good at something. Right. So like. That's exactly what she's known for. That's all that that is what Jennifer Harmon is known for. I was so frustrated seeing that she was omitted from a list where she should absolutely be on it. Of course, there's a lot more men who play poker. And of course, any top 10 list would and should be dominated by men just because there's so many more men in poker. I wouldn't take issue of someone coming up with a list. And it being, you know, nine men and one woman, maybe Jennifer Harmon is the only woman who should be on the list. I don't know. But it was all of the other comments. It wasn't that women were absent. They were absent from all of everyone's suggestions too. I'm sure you've noticed that anytime these conversations come up, you know, best musical artist, best TV show, whatever, it becomes this thing where it's men discussing it and they're just discussing other men and they don't even realize it. And I know that I avoid those conversations because what happens is someone comes in and this is what happened in that thread too. You know, someone came in, suggested Vanessa Seltz and someone immediately was like, oh, she's terrible, you know? And that's what happens is all these group think type of things. It's men discussing with other men. If someone suggests another Woman, that answer gets ridiculed. And so other people don't suggest women because it's groupthink. It's all very subjective. And no one wants to say a suggestion that other people are going to shoot down. So then people don't suggest women. And then women don't join the conversation because we're sick and tired of joining the conversation, suggesting another woman, only to have a bunch of men shoot it down. So then women self exclude from these conversations, understandably. And it becomes a conversation where it's men talking with other men about how great men are. And they don't even realize they're leaving women off the list. And you see it over and over again. And I get so frustrated. And they kept like changing the metric too. There's different metrics they were using, like who is the most entertaining people. And they kept like throwing out different metrics. And it didn't matter what it was. It was all a list of men. (laughs) And I was so irritated. So basically I made the list in response to that. I really didn't put any thought at all into who was on the list, into what order they were on the list. I just <laughs> thought of women that I think are good, threw them up on the list to, to make a point about how ridiculous it is to make a list like this and just exclude people with like, without even realizing it. And excluding someone who's so obvious, who should so obviously be on that list is Jennifer Harmon,
0: I mean, Vanessa helps. you know, I, I also have played with her so much. Um, and I think that um, just her, her table presence is just so phenomenal in her competitive drive and will to win that um, I am surprised, actually, that she didn't pop up um, more. But I think, you know, the thing about poker is people have short memories. So when somebody stops playing for a couple years, Um, They just kind of drop off from the conversation rather quickly, Mm -hmm. Um, not to excuse it. I'm just saying I do think Vanessa a few years ago would have been um, at least mentioned. You know, there's a broader point here, which I think is really important, is that I think they're constant listing and categorizing and top tening. Sure, I am interested in the goat. I'm interested in who's the number one, but up to a point, it seems like sometimes there's like a bit of like an obsession with that, which is also a very masculine way to look at the world. And mm-hmm. I found that like also kind of interesting about your tweet, that it's like a bit of it's like a bit of a joke, but it's also a takedown a bit of the entire concept.
1: Yeah. If you're not counting these things, it's hard to see it. Like, I remember one time reading a tweet about how, you know, men are retweeted way more and they're followed way more. And I went through and I looked at, you know, how many people I follow and how many people I retweet. And I saw that same discrepancy. I mean, of course, being in poker and following a lot of poker players, of course, I would expect to maybe have follow more men because of that. But when I went through and counted, I was, I was so surprised and about the discrepancy, even with my own, or like when I would make yoga playlists, I would always try to make my playlists that had more songs by women. And I wouldn't count. I would just make my list. I'd come up with it. And then without counting, I would just try to guess. And I'd be like, okay, do I think this list is, you know, balanced? Do I think it has more women? And over and over again, I would think it had more women. And I knew about the bias and I still couldn't overcome it. Every poker or yoga playlist I made, I felt like it had more women. And then I went and I counted it up. It was never out of balance. There might've been like a time where there's like eight songs by women and seven songs by men, but never was it out of balance. Never was there like nine songs by women and seven by men. Even though I knew about that bias, I still couldn't overcome it because we're so expecting men to be the norm that we can have a list that's 80% men and not even realize it because we're so used to it. So it's so important when you're looking for those biases in your life, you have to go and count. You have to look at the hard numbers. You can't just rely on your feeling because your feeling is wrong and you can know your bias, and you still can't. Past that bias, so it's really important whenever you're making these lists. Like, you have to look. Like, am I including all people? You have to count the numbers because you can't escape the the biases that we all
0: have. For you know, agreed. White men being the norm. Being aware of a bias is not enough. And I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because, of course, you're talking about women now. But I also saw that you recently retweeted the um, Harvard Implicit Bias Test, which is you know a great thing for everybody to um, check out. And that basically checks your re I mean, maybe you could describe it better than me. But it's like a way to check your reactions to black men and women and white men and women and detects um, your levels of potential bias.
1: Yeah, so I ended up taking that quiz when um, I clicked on I don't know how it works. But like I clicked on it. And then the one it pulled up for me was I had taken that one before about um, the racial bias, but Most recently when I clicked on it, it was testing whether I like prefer like androgynous people or people that are more stereotypical masculine and feminine. So it would show like the same face, but one would be like, you know, like the masculine version of it. And then the other would be the more like feminized version of it. And unsurprisingly, I had a small preference
0: for androgynous faces,
1: which I expected that I would.
0: It's great to be aware of all these biases, but one one thing I'm starting to find, honestly, um, and I, I find it difficult to talk about this on Twitter because I think conversations can be flattened, and I can end up, you know, agreeing with people that I fundamentally disagree with on so many other issues. I do find that there. It seems that there's like a A reckoning that we're having having in our culture where we are actually starting to call out when people are not diversifying both on racial and gender lines and yet the doling out of these judgments seems to be um so haphazard like sometimes it's it's done and almost people just done so so intensely and sometimes it's not done at all So the -hmm. calibration, I think, needs a lot of work. To me, it's just like crazy. Like some of the things that I see these days, like somebody just completely slipping under the radar with an all white male panel and then somebody Mm -hmm. getting attacked for not having like 50% or 55% women, right? It it just, it seems like, (laughs) it seems so random. Like sometimes like either, either, and that's a problem really with, um, with I think social media and the amplification that if you get if you get caught for being a jerk, it's going to be really, really bad. But if you're not Mm -hmm. caught, you get off scot free. And for me, I just wish there was more calibration.
1: Yeah, I think it's just that it's all about the audience. You know, like if the one person with all white male panel has a bunch of people who don't care about that, then they're not going to say anything. A similar thing is going on on Twitter right now. There's a lot of uh, infighting in the feminist community. And it's like on the one hand it's it's hard to watch people who agree on so much kind of devolve into fights over like the smallest things but on the other hand it's like it's almost nice to see people who care so much that they care so much about these little things and about being living their values so much that they look so deeply into all these things that now they're fighting about things that are so small when they agree about so much. You know, it's all about how much people care. So it's like the people who are getting upset because it's only 40% women, like, I'm glad that they care, you know? <laughs> I know there's people who, like, have an all-white male panel and don't think anything about it. I've been looking back at the, the Full Tilt Poker book for, you know, I said I was getting into these other games, these stud games. So I went and pulled out that book and have been reading it and I was looking at it I'm like these are all men and then I'm like wait these are all white men there are 12 white men who wrote this book and you know back in 2007 or something you know no one thought anything about that it's frustrating to me because while there is good information in that book also there's a lot of mediocre information in that book and there's a lot of mediocrity going on and it's like why are these the 12 people Not all these people need to be in this book. There are other people who could have been in the book. It didn't have to be 12 white men. But, you know, they didn't think about that back in 2007. I read that book back then. Did I think that? Did I notice? Nope, I don't think I did. And even now, you know, when I was looking at it, I definitely noticed there were no women before I noticed that it was all white. So I'm going to notice the not women faster, for better or for worse. You know, I noticed that first before I noticed that it was also White.
0: And by the way, I'm not going to call anything out right now, but you don't have to search far for those types of examples in 2020 either. Yeah. These things still happen where there can be a massive blind spot. And, you know, somebody who's very invested in diversifying spaces, you know, with my work with US chess women and looking at intersectionality, one thing I will say to people is that. It's, it's, not, it's not always easy. You can't expect to just be like, okay, I'm going to diversify, like, you know, awesome. Like, let me just do that and wave a magic wand. You might have to put a lot of effort into it, specifically if you're somebody from the media. I was reading an article about somebody who was trying to get as many female sources as male sources in their articles. And they um, had a spreadsheet and they said that they had actually had to contact 1.5 women to get a, a positive reply. So they had to put mm-hmm. more work into it. And, mm-hmm. you know, especially now when you when people are consciously trying to diversify, the, people might be um, hounded more if they were, they're somebody that will help diversify an article or a panel. So, you yeah. know, and you have to respect that, that they need to get work done. They don't just owe it to every media person to reply to them. So what does that right. mean for the person who's trying to diversify? It's hard work. It's going to take you more mm-hmm. maybe it's going to take you more time than than you want and uh, it's not just something where you can say okay i'm going to do this and check mark it off
1: yeah absolutely that's such an important point and maybe that's the reason why people don't do it is it does take more work like when i first found out the thing about the, the twitter and people follow more women you know i i went through my Twitter feed, and I found more women to follow. And I unfollowed some men either because I thought they were problematic or I unfollowed men that would like tweet a lot about sports or something I'm not interested in. So I made that effort to even out my numbers, but I didn't do it in one shot. They're even now, and well, now it's probably even more women, but I wasn't able to do it in one shot. I had to do it like several times to get to that point. And it does actually Take work. Like it it doesn't happen automatically and it does take work. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, years ago when Mitt Romney was running for president, he was like, Oh, I have binders full of women. (laughs) And people rightfully made fun of him. In some ways, it's a little unfair in that you do have to make a conscious effort. And we don't want to be making fun of people who are making that effort. But I think the reason why it was so off-putting is is because it's like if you're in a position where you're running for president, you should have been at the binders full of women stage years ago. Like if you're just now at that stage, you're not ready to run for president in terms of like, do I trust that that person would actually bring in diverse voices if they're at step one. No, I don't. I'm glad that someone's at that step of being like, oh, wait, we need to include more people. How are we going to do it? Let's have this binder. Like, good, you're on the right step. Not good enough for president, though, because that's step one, and you need to, like, be at step 10 if you're going to get my vote.
0: Well, what we would do for binders full of women over the last past four years in terms of, (laughs) you know, issues... (laughs) With uh, so, our so, president, yeah. What was it? Um, just grab her by the pussy versus binders mm-hmm. full yeah. of women. That's that's what we got. That's what we got. Yeah,
1: it was, it's funny. I remember back in two thousand five, very vividly having a conversation with my friend, being so worried that Mitt Romney would be
0: president one day. It's like, oh man,
1: yeah. <laughs> I had no idea how bad it could be. Like,
0: <laughs> we're recording this interview in. July of 2020, so we can only hope that uh, this time, this era will be over soon. Um, But Mm -hmm. seriously, um, this conversation has been so fantastic. Jack5 offsuit, Amanda Baker, she is on Twitch at Rosalina Sky, right? And you do- Um, Yeah, well, I I have two. There's uh, Rosalina Sky. If you don't want to hear me
1: soapboxing about political and social issues, If you only want the poker stuff, then you can follow me on Rosalina Sky. That is what I use that one for. I use that one for like Twitch and yoga and poker type stuff. But if you want to hear my opinions on everything, (laughs) politics and all that, then the one to follow would be um, Mandy22baker.
0: Uh And that's also your Twitter handle at Mandy22baker. And as you've noticed from this conversation, I pulled out some real gems from Mandy's um, Twitter feed. So you should definitely go over and follow her and hey maybe you can check out the the people that she follows if you're looking to diversify your yep. list and, and, <laughs> and not do all of the work just piggyback off of hers yeah exactly thank you so much mandy baker on jack five offsuit thank you for having me thank you so much for listening to the poker grid go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network we're on apple podcast stitcher spotify We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the Mind Sports Arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the poker grid as we count down 169 hands.
1: No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve, yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me.